I want to ask you to grab your Bible and open to Ezra chapter 9. You'll find it on page 395 if you're using the Bible. That's on the seat back in front of you. Ezra 9. And yes, this is the last of our Ezra sermons. Next week, we'll start off with the continuation of the, the narrative though in Nehemiah. By the way, if, if, uh, if me saying grab your Bible and open to Ezra 9 wasn't enough to convince you yet to do it, I really want to convince you to do it because we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, and it's two chapters worth. And I, I'd love for you to follow along as we do that. Before we do that, I'm going to set it up though with just a, a simple introduction illustration. My family uh, just got Netflix. We're kind of late to the game on that one. But we got Netflix a couple weeks ago and, um, and uh, started watching this show that, uh, that was pretty compelling. We're not, I'm not that far into it. I'm only a couple episodes into it. But if, if, have you, any of you seen Stranger Things? Alright, so here, here's what I want us to, if you haven't seen it, I'll give you a, a brief synopsis of what I've seen in like three or four episodes so far. Um, no spoilers. Uh, but, but the, the gist of the story is that there is, there is this mystery, uh, monster that's going around. It's sort of a sci-fi alien thing, but this mystery monster that's, that's going around. And the monster, so far as I've seen at least, the monster's objective is to, destroy it's to 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 kill or to suck people into what what seems to be this sort of dark upside down world where there there's suffering in there there's pain in there there's fear in there okay and so the 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 plot is that there's there's been some people who have been abducted by this thing and sucked into this underworld of darkness and those who have lost them their their loved ones their family members are so far trying to figure out how to rescue these lost souls, right? And, and their objective is to, is to kill this beast, whatever it is, this monster. They want to, they want to catch it. They want to kill it. They want to put an end to it. And so here's the question that I wanted to throw out as far as a, um, just a, an introductory thought. If, if that's the case, how weird, not just weird, but how, how insane would it be for one of the characters on the show to decide all of a sudden that they've fallen in love with the monster? This, this, this one that's out to seek and destroy and enslave, you and, and one of you decides, you know what? I want to marry that guy. Right? If, if you were, if you were, were, were friends with or a family member with this one, you, you'd say, what is wrong with you? Are you kidding me? That's insane. Right? That's the way we ought to think about our love affair with sin. That's, that's the way we ought to think about our love affair with sin. It is a monster. It is enslaving. It is, it is to, to, to suck us into an under, upside down, dark, dangerous, destructive place. A whole world. And yet the insanity of our own hearts and their, their infection of sin is that it would, it, it, we would, we would say so often, I love it. And it sounds insane to say it out loud, doesn't it? 
And yet that's the depravity of the human heart. So with that in mind, I'm trusting that God will show us by His work in the past how He continues to work in the present. And may God indeed do among us what He did among them. Look down at Ezra chapter 9. It says, after these things had been done. Now, just a quick reminder of what had been done. We've seen the second wave of people coming back from Persian captivity into Jerusalem, into Judah, right? Uh, and and the, we, the last chapter, we saw the way that that occurred. There was prayer and there was fasting. There was trusting in the Lord. Uh, there was this preparation. And, and we saw Ezra coming with the people leading the people. And the key thing that we see about Ezra was that he was a man who set his heart to study the Word of God, to practice the Word of God, to teach the Word of God. There's a picture here of, of this return being under the, 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 uh, the authority and the instruction of God's Word for the revival of the people. God's mercy being displayed and releasing them from captivity into freedom. So after these things had been done, they've come back now Ezra's been teaching for some time, and it says the officials approached me, me being Ezra, he's writing this, and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that they so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Ezra responds saying, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and beard and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn and I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God! I'm ashamed! And blushed to lift my face to You, my God! For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands of the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, oh our God, 
What shall we say after this? For we've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands and with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you've consumed us? so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before You in our guilt, for none can stand before You because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping, and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, addressed Ezra, we've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, There is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property shall be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. 
Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We can't stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashael, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses according to the fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the, of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, I'm not going to read it, but if we were to, to continue reading for the next three or four minutes through verses 18 to 43, you'd have a list of the guilty. Could you imagine that? You've just been immortalized in Scripture for all time as a sinner. That's heavy, right? Verse 44, after the list has been read, all of these had married foreign women and some of the women had even born children. Which complicates things significantly, right? But guess what? That's the end of the book. It's not a, this is not a Disney story. This doesn't end with a happy ending. It doesn't end with a big festival and a big wedding, right? In fact, this ends with mass divorce and guilt. The end, roll credits, right? This is, this is a... <laughs> wow. And yet this is what the whole thing has been leading to. God is bringing His people back to, to worship Him, to, to be in His presence. It's an act of mercy, but, but He's not just bringing them back physically. He's got to bring them back to the heart. And in order to do that, by His Word, He's going to bring about all that's in them, all that, that separates them from Him, Expose it and deal with it. That's how God works. So I've titled the message this morning, Serious Sin, Serious Repentance. We're going to take a look at just why what they have done here is so serious and what it looks like it, when, when, when we recognize the seriousness of our own sin. What does it look like really to confess it, to repent of it, and then what will God do? So let's talk about the first thing, and that's the nature of serious sin. Right? What, what did they do here? What was so, so wrong that would cause Ezra to rip his clothes and pull out his hair and cry out the way that he did? His reaction is telling. This is massive. What was it? Well, we read here that, that they've married foreign women. Now, for us, that might sound kind of weird. Uh, that might even kind of scratch against our modern sensibilities. Is, is God racist? 
God like into ethnic cleansing here? What's, what's this all about? Why, why when the, the original exodus out of Egypt was taking place and God was giving them the promised land, that this indeed was occupied by lots of these different people, all of these different ites, right? The Jebusites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, etc. Why God saying to them, expel them, and not just expel them, but, but judgment upon them, there was death warrants issued, right? Put them to death. What is that all about? Well, I want to, I want to, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I want to make something crystal clear to us all this morning that this is not about race or ethnicity. Okay? It's not about race or ethnicity. It's about religion. And I can demonstrate that in a couple of ways. The first one is this. God was not opposed to foreigners. In fact, we see godly examples of inner, inner marriage. Joseph, Moses, Boaz, right? Taking Ruth. God was not in any way opposed to. In fact, there was an invitation to those who were outside of the community of Israel to come into the community of Israel. And those who did came in by faith. They, they came under the reign and the rule of the God of heaven. It was, a, it was a matter of faith. It was a matter of believing that this indeed is the one true God. And those that did were welcomed into the community. So this is not an ethnic thing. It's a religious thing. Those who didn't, by faith, recognize the authority of the one true God and come under His reign and rule were idolaters. They were worshipers of all kinds of false gods. And, and so the, the, the prohibition against marrying and intermarriage there, what, again, wasn't an ethnic thing, but it was a, it was a heart thing saying, God knowing if, if you do this, that idolatrous worship will stain you. You're going to get sucked into that too. It was a protection for the people of God. It was a, it was a, it was a mark of holiness to say, don't mix up right religion with wrong religion. And we see examples of that happening over and over again, chief of which might be Solomon. Right? Solomon's king, kingdom, he starts off pretty well, but then he starts marrying lots and lots of wives and he takes in lots of different people from lots of different kinds of religions and pretty soon his, he's toast. His worship of God is worthy of judgment. That was the sin that split the kingdom in the first place. That's the sin that led to the exile in the first place. What is sin and why is it so heinous? Well, think again about that example I gave you from Stranger Things. It's a, it's a good description of sin. Sin is, the, is just the, is the turning upside down of what God has made and intended. It's taking all that God has, has made, which He's declared to be good, and that goodness flows directly from His nature and His character and is maintained by His reign and rule. When creation follows along with its Creator, it's, it's healthy and blessed and well. And when it doesn't, it's, a, it's, an, it's an action of rebellion against that goodness and reign to say, no God, not you, us. And it turns everything good on its head and distorts it and takes the, the essence of God's self-giving, loving nature and says no self-taking selfishness is what we want. 
idolatry takes on every single form of placing something above God. There are millions and millions and billions and trillions of idols to be worshipped. And you create them. The ones that don't yet exist, you'll create them. And what's it about? It, it, it's, it, again, it's, it's just base selfishness. God, not you, me. Let me form something after my own image, after my own desires, after my own flesh. There, there's, there's this, uh, uh, those of you who have taken science classes, which I hope is all of us, right? You, 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 we talk about sort of base evolutionary desire. Right? That if there was no God, if, 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 if all we are is just beings who are out to sort of survive, then we're, then we're reduced down to basically four base desires. To, to feed, to fight, to flee, and to mate. And that, that's a perfect picture of what all the idols out there pretty much represent. It's our base desire to just feed, and to fight, and to flee, and to reproduce. And so this sin is just another example of, of the heart of mankind saying, God, yeah, we did that before and you, you delivered us. And, and then we did it again and you, and you exiled us and now you've delivered us and, and we're going to do it again? This is why sin is so serious. It is a flat rejection of God and why it's so dangerous it's a turning upside down of all that is good. Now here's what's what's interesting here. How how was the sin exposed? It was exposed by the the teaching of God's word. Verse 1 again. It says after after these things had been done the officials approached. They come to Ezra. They start to confess some things. You see down in, in verse 4, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around. It, it was those who had, had, had trembled before the Word. And what's, what's totally fascinating about this is, is that we look, we're given some of the dates here when this began to occur, and, and it's just simply about three months after they had come back, after we had seen in chapter 7 that Ezra studied and practiced and taught the Word. As he began to open up the Scriptures to the people, within just a matter of about three months' time, sitting under that teaching, we see the conviction start to fall on them. And you know it's coming from the Word, not just because Ezra says it was those who trembled at God's Word, but the confession that they make itself has the terminology of the law all over it. The confessions that they're making, here's what we've done, and they list out the intermarriage, and the language used is right out of Deuteronomy. God's Word began to shape them. And I think it's fascinating here. Ezra didn't bring it up. Right? Let me, let me, as I'm preaching through, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and I'm teaching the law of Moses here, let me, let me bring a little application here. Some of you have been married foreign wives. Oh, wow, gosh, yeah. You didn't do that. They came to him and said, you've been preaching the law. We know what we've done. 
So the Word of God reveals the heart. The Word of God convicts. And it brings about confession. What does serious confession look like? What does serious confession look like? I see four things here that I want to just highlight. I won't spend too, too much time on them, but we see it in Ezra. The first thing we see is holy brokenheartedness and sorrow. Verse 3 is a powerful verse. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak. I pulled the hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. Right? What, what, what's, what's happening here? The, 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 the brokenness and the sorrow, the anger over the foolishness of the human heart to just keep running back to, back to sin. Just When it lands on him, it's just gut-wrenching. Breaks his heart. It, it, it brings about a, a tremendous sorrow that leads then to the second thing. Holy shame and guilt over sin. We see that in verses 6 and 7. God, I'm ashamed. I blush to lift my face to You. Our iniquities are risen higher than our heads. It's, it's like He's saying, we're swimming in this. And I'm ashamed. You know, we, we talk about, about shame and guilt as bad words in, in modern culture. And they, they can lead to a bad thing, but they're not bad things in and of themselves. It's right for sinners to be ashamed. It's right for sinners to feel guilt. When, when you recognize that you stand in front of a holy God as a rebel who's just given Him the finger, that's a shameful thing. If it ends in shame, then it's a dangerous thing. But shame is a bridge. And guilt is a bridge from God that leads us to the third thing, which is a right appraisal of our sin according to His Word. If I don't see that I don't measure up to the Word, I'm not driven to it. Verses 10 through 12, we see Ezra appraising rightly, according to the word, what, what's wrong? God, what shall we say? We've forsaken your commandments. You told us not to do this, and we did it. It's right here in your book. It's right here in the law, and we did it. This is why we're guilty. And then finally, it leads to an appeal to God's mercy. God, if, if we're standing in before you ashamed, and broken and sorrowful, and according to your law, we are judged and condemned, and we have no we have no plea to make. God, we we have nothing to plead but for mercy. Verses thirteen through fifteen. After all that's come upon us for our evil deeds, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than we've deserved. And have given us a remnant. Is this, should we keep doing this? Should we, should we keep going? Should we break these things again? Would you be not angry with us until there's nothing left of us? Behold, we're before you in our guilt. But then we see back in verses 8 and 9 this, but now for a brief moment, God, you've shown us favor. You have left us a remnant that you might brighten our eyes to grant us a reviving in our slavery. We, we're slaves, but. But God, You've not forsaken to us, forsaken us in this slavery. You've given us love, Lord. 
do it again, right? Is that what your confession looks like before God? When you know that you've you've got nowhere to go, you, you see the weight of sin in your life, does it lead you to broken-hearted sorrow that rightly points out your guilt and your shame? Do you praise it against the Word of God? And not, not any other thing. Not your comparison against other people or, or against my feelings. Or here's some excuses. Here, you know, here's why I did it. It's, it's a societal issue, God. It's, you know, so-and-so made me do this. No, the Word of God says this, and I'm here. There's a gap. I'm guilty. That leads you to appeal to the mercy of God. That's what true confession looks like. And it leads somewhere. It leads somewhere. It leads to serious repentance. This is what serious repentance looks like. And this is what serious holiness requires. Chapter 10, we see in the first five verses, there was this mutual confession with Ezra. Ezra, the same things that you've just cried out to God, we're crying out the same to. We're with you. We are... We are, we are uh, we're saying the same words. This is us. And then, in that confession, they say, something has to be done. We, we need to make a commitment to, to do something about our sin. And they make a covenant. And they make a covenant to turn away from sin and towards the Lord according to His Word. Look again at verses 10 and through 12 of chapter 10. Ezra the priest stood up to them and said, You have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. And all the assembly answered with a loud voice, Yeah. It's so. We must do as you have said. And what do they do? They put away their wives and their kids. Listen, that's a massive gut punch. I hope, I hope when I read that, it bothered you. I hope when I read that, it, it just went, oh, what? Let's talk about that. It's a very serious very sad and a very sobering thing to put away your wives and your children. What is what's going on with that? Yeah, God, we can understand you saying this was wrong. You shouldn't have done this. But if the response is now break up your family, that seems so intense, and it should because it is. Not just because it is in this situation, because it ought to be that way in every situation. When we so align ourselves with sin, and we confess and we, we, we understand what true repentance looks like, it's to turn away from that thing and to go in the opposite direction, it's going to cause some extremely difficult ripping. Because sin is so ingrained in us. And there's some structures that are so often built up in our lives because of our sin, and we're going to have to deal with those structures. 
And that's what they're faced with here. Now, is, is God a, is God a home wrecker here? Is he unfair? No, he's not that. What he's showing them is that there's a, there's a difference here between the way that you have gone about these relationships and the way that you ought to have gone about them. You should have gone about their, your relationships to the world around you in an evangelistic way. And instead, what you've done is you've latched onto them in an idolatrous way. What does that mean for us today when we consider what God is asking them to do? What they've covenanted together to do? Well, in the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians say that for those of us who are believers, who are married to an unbeliever, he actually says the opposite here. You don't need to divorce them. In fact, he encourages you to stay in that relationship, right? However, he makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians, you shouldn't have been in that in the first place, though. There's a very clear call for the Christian not to be unequally yoked with a non-believer. So if you are a believer, and you're flirting around with the possibility of intermingling with a non-believer, you stand in the same boat that the people of Israel were here. Don't do that. What relationship does God have with Baal? With Beelzebub? But if you come to Christ as an unbeliever married to an unbeliever and you come to Christ and they don't, the heart here of God towards the non-believing world is evident. Don't, don't leave them. Don't seek to leave them. Seek to win them. Seek to be a light to them. Seek to see them come under the covenant of faith, to belief in Christ, to repentance of their own sin. But then there's this, there's this sort of follow-up statement to that that Paul says, but they might leave you. And if they do, you're no longer bound. Now, why would he say that to them? I think it's because of this. Paul understands that, look, when, if, if, you're a, if you're a believer and you're, and you're yoked together with an unbeliever, the, the, the point of that is not to just go along with them in their, in their worldly ways. It's not that you would just sort of like, well, I'm, you know, married to this person and, you know, they don't go to church and they don't follow the Lord and they're into these kinds of other things that I know God's not, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to leave them. I'll just, I'll go along to get along. I want to love my spouse. And, and, and Paul actually doesn't have a category for that because Paul says, no, if you come to Christ, your whole, your whole posture towards them should be showing them the holiness of God and the goodness of the Gospel and winning them over, and you might, in your radical change, be so unbearable to them that they'll leave you. But that's on them. And you're not bound. But the life of the believer should be so radically opposed to the idolatrous ways of the world that somebody might want to say, I can't live with you anymore. Because that's what repentance looks like. The principle here is that sin is so serious, so threatening, so deadly that it must be removed. And repentance, true repentance, seeks to kill sin before it kills you. 
to borrow from the Puritan John Owen. That's what true repentance looks like. Seek to kill sin before it kills you. Because it will. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29-30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Is Jesus advocating for self-mutilation? No, He's saying it's so serious that if it requires a severe severance, do it. Your life depends on it. So I want to ask us all to consider that. Is that what repentance looks like in your life? Do you make a complete and honest confession before God? A complete and honest confession. And maybe before others, if necessary. And do you make a complete break, full break, from the idols that ensnare you? Some of you may be living in sinful relationships. You need to break it off. Some of you need to move out. Or you need to put a ring on it. Some of you are enslaved to addictions. You need to get help and you need to put it away. You need to get help and you need to put it away. Some of you are playing with pornography. Get the computer out of your room. Put it away. Stop. Stop. Do you need accountability? Get it. You're lying. You're hiding. Expose it. Come clean. What are you filling your mind with? What images? What messages? And if, if in any way they're leading your mind subtly towards idols and away from God, put them away. You know, my wife... Uh, said something very prophetic. We were talking about uh, the online you know, Instagram culture, the Snapchat culture, the, the, the selfie culture. She said this. She said, you know, never has there been a generation more affirmed. Like you put a picture up of yourself and a hundred of your friends, oh, you're just so beautiful. You're so gorgeous. You're so... Oh, look at you, right? No, never has there been a generation more affirmed and yet at the same time more insecure. Isn't that true? 
It's that dark underworld. That's that flipping up of everything, of everything upside down. Just, just tell me, tell me, tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm enough. Tell me I'm sufficient. And all the while, you're just reinforcing the fact that you need constant verbal affirmation. And without it, you have nothing because you have an idol. And idols are empty. Some of you may need to delete some apps. You know, sometimes this is a process. Some sins are, are, are they're deep. And the effects of them are deep. And, and, and we see that in verse 13 here. Marriage, that's deep. And so verse 13, they ask, hey, we might, this isn't going to happen in a day. This is going to happen in two days. Right? Sometimes it's a process. But get this. The process must work towards completion. It must work towards a completion. A full turning away. By the end of that text there, we see there was a date in which it was over. It was done. They came to the last one. Take some time. Work it out. But get it done. J.I. Packer says in his concise theology, repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views values, goals, and ways are changed. And one's life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes, all are involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. And he makes the, the distinction between attrition and contrition. Attrition being a, a remorse or, or a sorrow that's driven by fear without any resolve to actually forsake anything. And he says that's, for, that's, that's insufficient. Anybody can be remorseful. But if it doesn't lead to a desire to forsake anything, that's just attrition. Contrition is having at its heart a serious purpose of sinning no more but living from then onwards a life that will show your repentance was real. God, I am walking away from this and towards You. It's going in the opposite direction from before. It's practicing the things that are most opposed to what you were doing before. And the bottom line is this. Sin is not to be taken lightly and neither is repentance. When the weight of sin falls heavy on us, it's a crushing burden. Maybe some of you are feeling that right now. If you've been under the, the, the weight to the point of a conviction that leads to genuine confession and repentance like I've been talking about this morning, you know just how crushing that weight can be. And you know there's nowhere to go. You know there's nothing else that you can do except... Plead for mercy. Your sin deserves punishment and you feel it in your bones. So I'm not going to let you leave on that note. Because there's seriously good news for sinners. Sinners.
Sin is serious. Confession is serious. Repentance is serious. But there's some seriously good news for sinners. The burning question in the depths of your soul right now might be this. Is God merciful? Is He? Unless you perish under the weight of your guilt, I have good news both from this passage and I have better news still. The good news from this passage is that Ezra knew that God is merciful. He is a broken, angry, upset, contrite man, but he knew that God was merciful. If you look back again at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9, this is language here that understands something about the nature of God. He ought to be a shuddering before God as He is, but, but, but He still approaches. Now for a brief moment, Lord, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Now he's saying here something about the way it has been. God, you've done this already. And it leads him to say, so how foolish of us to forsake you again. And yet, the appeal here is, God, this is the kind of God that you are. You're good. You extend to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up this house, to, to repair its ruins, to, to make Your presence with us again, Lord, known and felt and experienced. Despite their sin, Ezra knew God wasn't done with them yet. He wasn't done with them yet. Even, even though they sinned again, God wasn't done with them yet. His loving kindness had led them to repentance and His loving kindness would deliver them and establish them again. Better news. Christian, we know, we know what Ezra could only look forward to. We know the full display of God's loving kindness to sinners. And it's this. He sent us His Son. I want to read to you from Romans 5. Jeremy began to read a little bit of it earlier. I'm going to read a little bit more of it. Just listen. Maybe you need to close your eyes. That's fine. Just listen. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Matt Chandler in his book, The Explicit Gospel, says the Maker of those 
this would be the marker of those who understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ, is that when they stumble, when they fall, when they screw up, they run to God and not from Him because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated on their behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death. So will you run to Him? Sinner, I invite you to call out to Him for mercy. And to believe. To believe that for those who genuinely are broken over their sin, those who confess and repent, those who believe upon God's offer of mercy through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is great Your sin is great. God's grace is greater still. So Father, I pray that You would help us. I pray that You would speak to my brothers and sisters right where they're at this morning. Some of them in this room today have never known Your mercy and grace. Some of them may be feeling the weight of sin this morning and need to know that there's hope for them in Christ. And so I pray, Father, that You would open their eyes fully and their hearts fully to receive the good news that You have sent Your Son into the world for sinners like them. And You've made a way for reconciliation by the shedding of His blood and the promise of His resurrection. And Lord, I know that some of my brothers and sisters here who have made a profession of faith, may yet have found themselves presuming upon that grace. Maybe they found themselves toying around with sin. Maybe they found themselves stuck by a besetting sin that they just can't seem to figure out how to overcome. And so Lord, I pray that You would help them to stop trying to figure it out and just simply confess and repent and believe. And trust that it's right for them to be broken. It's right for them to be sorrowful. It's right for them to be ashamed. But it's even more right for them to trust that your steadfast love and mercy are greater still. Lord, I just pray that You would do among us what You have done among the people in Ezra 9 and 10. Make us a people who are wholly Yours, wholly clean, wholly trusting in the blood of Christ.